We're secure in Christ. No condemnation to those who are what? In Christ. I have received the spirit of sonship so that I would have the assurance and the confidence that I belong to God. The spirit of sonship makes me feel not afraid. The spirit of sonship doesn't make me feel afraid. The spirit of sonship makes me feel like I belong to God. This is not just intellectual, objective stuff. The Spirit of God is in me. He speaks to me rationally and objectively in terms of truth, propositional truth, but he also confirms to my life, to my heart, to the deepest part of my being, that I belong to God. He is called the Spirit of Sonship. And he makes sure to me my sonship. We'll see that in verse 16 in just a few moments. Paul tells Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, God has not given us a spirit of timidity or a spirit of fear. That's not the kind of spirit God gives us. John writes in 1 John chapter 4, verse 18, perfect love drives out fear. Picture this now. You remember what Paul said back in Romans chapter 5, verse 5? He said, God pours out his love into our what? What's the word he uses? Those of you that are memorizing Romans with me? God pours out his love into our what? Into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given to us. Now listen, follow this. He's put the Holy Spirit in you, right? And it's by the Holy Spirit that he's pouring out his love into your heart, right? Where do you normally fear, feel fear? In your heart? What does John say? John says that perfect love, what? Drives out fear. Isn't that exciting? Don't you love it? Aren't you just thrilled? Very I can tell. <laughs> Beloved, grasp this. Perfect love drives it out. You desire to be filled with the Spirit? When you're afraid, what does that, what does that tell you? I'm not filled with the Spirit. Right? When you're feeling insecure, anxious, nervous, when everything seems to be coming in on you, you're going, Aah! Your spiritual tanks are running what? Whoa! Fill them up! Well, how do I fill them up? Get on your knees. Get on your knees and open this book and stick your nose in it. Begin to sing his praises. Begin to say, oh God, I hallow your name. And you know what? And if you mean it, if you mean it, you know what's going to happen? He's going to fill you up. He may not change your circumstance, but he's going to fill you up. So that you can have, what? Victory. Victory in Jesus. <laughs> Amen? Hallelujah. Do you believe this stuff? Yes. Are you sure? Amen. Really? You really believe this stuff? Amen. I hope so. Oh. You see, fear has to do with punishment, doesn't it? Fear has to do with condemnation, doesn't it? I have nothing to do with punishment. Punishment has nothing to do with me. 
Condemnation has nothing to do with me, therefore fear has nothing to do with me. I have been delivered from fear. Isn't that exciting? Isn't God great? By his spirit who lives in me. There is no more fear. Hallelujah. I've been set free from fear. Have you been set free from fear? Yes, you have. If you want to experience it, what do you got to do? Walk in the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. Get those tanks filled back up. Don't let them run low. Keep topping them off. Remember we talked about that a couple weeks ago? Keep topping off those spiritual tanks. Look what else the Holy Spirit does. To affirm to us, to confirm to us our security in Christ, our no condemnation status, our no fear status, the Holy Spirit causes us to cry out. The Greek word krazo, which describes or signifies a deep crying out. It's by the Spirit that we cry, what is it? Abba, Father. Now, there's two words there. Abba is an Aramaic word, and pater, which is the uh, Greek word which is translated father. So it's Abba, pater. Abba, you'll notice, is not translated by the word father, is it? It is a much more intimate word. It's a much more, it's a very, 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 very personal word. I would suggest to you, here's a translation that is very meaningful to me. Papa. Papa. Now some of you may be uncomfortable with Papa because it sounds so immigrantish. <laughs> Somebody came up to say to me, he said, well, it sounds like an immigrant, Papa. But think with me, now think with me. Most of us are very uncomfortable with intimacy, relational intimacy. As you grow up, you find it very, very difficult. Most people, not everybody, but most people find it very, very difficult to be intimate with their father. Okay? I had a very difficult time with my dad. Couldn't be intimate with him. He couldn't be intimate with me. He wasn't intimate with his father. His father wasn't intimate with him. It was just kind of passed down in our family. My brother's here tonight. My youngest brother received the Lord. Just last year, and we are <laughs> we are growing we are growing much more intimate, much more intimate than we ever have been. But the point I want to make is this: is that most people can't be intimate with their father; they can't be intimate with God. Now, you'll relate. Most of you can relate to your father. You can say, "Dad, father." Some can say, Daddy. But as you grow older, Daddy ceases to be the term that you talk to your dad about. You use to describe him. Most people don't go to their dad. They're not 47 years old and say, Daddy. <laughs> Are you with me? Now, some of you do, and, and you're very fortunate. But you've got to see this word. It's a very intimate word. It's a very personal word. And it's the Holy Spirit that causes us to cry out, not just to say, but to cry out, Papa, Papa. Do that. 
Papa. 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 That's kind of a nice ring to it, doesn't it? I love that. I love it. When I was a little boy, I could call my dad daddy. But as I grew up, it was dad. Pop. But you know, it was never papa. It was never papa. He remembers. I want you to think about this. You and I can go into the very presence of the holy God into the very throne room. And we don't announce before we go in, turn down the heat. We can go into the very presence of the holy God, and we can stand right there, we can climb in his lap, and we can say, Papa, Papa, by the Holy Spirit. You've never prayed until you've been on your face and you've cried out, Papa. Until you can envision God as your Papa. And allow the Holy Spirit to begin to work in you and that you might pray that way. That one word is a prayer all of its own, isn't it? That one word, Papa, Abba, is a prayer all in its own. And you have not yet prayed until you've been down on your face praying that way by the Spirit. Not a nice formal prayer, not a nice perfunctory prayer, not a prayer by the numbers, not a, oh Lord, oh you who sits on the rim of the universe. <laughs> you just get right down and you say, Papa, Papa, I love you. I love you. Meet my needs. Help me, Papa. Isn't that a prayer? Uh, help me, Papa. You see, that kind of prayer comes from the depths of your heart, doesn't it? You can't pray Papa unless the Spirit of God. You can't pray it in your flesh, can you? Sounds foolish, doesn't it? You will not pray Papa that way unless you allow the Spirit of God to draw it out of you. Do you know that? Otherwise, you're going to feel funny. Even when you're all by yourself, you just pop. <laughs> you're going to remember my words, aren't you? You're going to go, oh, this is hard. Oh, I'm not used to this. Surrender to the Holy Spirit. And pray that, Papa. The Holy Spirit of God causes us to cry out, Papa. I belong in the presence of my Papa. I can take the most insignificant need to him, and he cares about it. Doesn't Peter say, cast all your anxieties on him? Not just the big ones. Cast all your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. Your papa cares for you. Isn't that glorious? Isn't that glorious? 
I can take everything to him. Jesus, in Mark chapter 14, verse 36, in the Garden of Gethsemane, you know what he uttered? Papa. Papa. Papa, take this cup from me. Not my will, but yours be done. Papa. If it's good enough for Jesus, isn't it good enough for his brothers and his sisters? It's the Holy Spirit that causes us to pray that way. We don't do it on our own. It's, the Holy, it's only the Holy Spirit. Let me talk to you, give you a word about this adoption thing, or this sonship. This is, this is important, because it gives us some perspective of what it means to be adopted into God's family. The spirit of sonship, spirit of adoption. Growing up, most of you may have encountered this. If there was a, a child in your neighborhood or at school or someone that you knew was adopted, it was always tried to be kept a secret. Because adopted kids were almost looked at as second-class kids. They had a second-class kind of status. You weren't a real son. You were adopted. You were kind of added on because no one else wanted you. And there's a, there's a, a real stigma in some people's minds, toward kids who are adopted. Can you, you understand what I'm talking about? Can you relate to that some? Well, in the Roman culture, in the ancient Near East, it was quite the opposite. Let me describe to you this whole system of adoption. Now, Paul's got this in the background of his thinking as he uses this word adoption or sonship. Let me describe to you what a Roman adoption process was like. Now, if a father surveyed his family and he had some born sons... And those sons were not capable in his mind of taking over the family estate, carrying on his name, his title, uh, his prestige, uh, whatever else he had. This father would go outside the family and he'd look around for a son to adopt who would inherit his estate, inherit his name, inherit his authority, his prestige, his titles, whatever. And this adopted son would supersede all the born sons. But the process of adoption was very, very difficult in Rome, in Roman society. They had this incredible series of laws that governed all of Roman life. Now, part of the difficulty was that a father in Roman life had absolute total control over his children. He could kill you if he wanted he had that kind of power and that control over you if you were a child in a Roman household. Now, there was an elaborate system, the system called emancipation. You can read about this in uh, uh, Barclay's commentary. He talks about He's done a lot of research into the Roman adoption system. And he talks about there's this elaborate process of emancipation. It takes a long time, a lot of effort, to emancipate a child from another, from the authority of his natural father. After the emancipation occurs, then they've got this long legal process called vindication. And it's, as they go through this process, as the child is vindicated, he is free now to be adopted. So he's got to be emancipated before he can be adopted. And it's a long, long, intricate and elaborate legal process. It wasn't easy to adopt in ancient Rome, but it was possible. 
Now let me read to you four things that were consequent to a Roman adoption. And listen to them because they bear greatly on the things that are consequent to us in terms of our adoption. First of all, the adopted son lost all relationship to the old family. He lost all relationship to the old family. Now, didn't we say last week that there were two fathers and two families? And if you're adopted into this new family, you will lose all relationship to the old family, the old father. And you gain all rights to the new family. The second thing is this. This adopted son became heir to the new father's estate. Does that sound like something that would be desirable? That's exactly what's happened to us. We become heir to our new father's estate. We'll look at that in verse 17 next time. The third thing is the former life is completely wiped out. All past debts are canceled. It's as if this new adopted son never lived before. And he is born for the first time. Does that sound kind of vaguely familiar? That all the past debts have been canceled out? It's like you never lived before, and you get a whole brand new start with a new father. Fourthly, in the eyes of the law, in the eyes of the law, now listen to this. We're, t- we're talking about Roman law, but, but there's, we're talking about the law of God too. In the eyes of the law, the adopted son was literally and absolutely the son of his new father. You see why Paul says earlier on that we've been freed from the law? The law looks at us now that we are now sons of a new father. You with me? I want to picture, I want to show you now an adoption in the, in the Old Testament. Turn with me to 2 <clears throat> Samuel chapter 9. A beautiful, beautiful, glorious picture of an adoption. This is David, King David, adopting Mephibosheth, who is Jonathan's son. Now remember, if you remember the account, David's chief adversary was King Saul. Do you remember that? Tried to kill David a number of times. Absolute enemy to David. He did everything to kill David, but Jonathan loved David, and David loved Jonathan. And it was for Jonathan's sake that David wants to extend kindness to the household of his enemy. He wants to extend kindness for Jonathan's sake. Now look at what happens. Let's look at chapter 9. I want you to read with me. Now this is approximately 15 years after Jonathan and Saul die. Okay, 15 years. A lot has transpired in David's life. And uh, he's older now. He's settled. And this is where he comes to. David asked, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They called him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? Your servant, he replied. The king asked, Is there no one still left 
of the house of Saul. Now, by this time, Saul's household was absolutely decimated. He says, there's no one left of the house of Saul to whom I can show, now look, he says, God's kindness. Ziba answered the king, well, there is still a son of Jonathan, but he's crippled in both feet. Well, we've got one crippled person, and that's about it. You get that? You follow that? He says, we haven't got much. The only thing that's left of Saul's house is a crippled guy. Where is he, the king asked. Zeba answered, he is at the house of Makir, son of Emil, in Lodabar. Now, Lodabar means a barren land. Mephibosheth means a shameful thing. So we've got an insignificant person from an insignificant place whom David is going to adopt. Isn't this beautiful? So King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Machir, son of Emil. And when Mephibosheth, when the shameful thing, son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, your servant, he replied. Now look what David says. Don't be afraid. Now Mephibosheth had something to be afraid about. Because in the ancient Near East, when a king was solidifying his power, he killed off every possible heir of his enemy king who could potentially usurp the throne. So put yourself in Mephibosheth's place. He's been hiding out in a desolate, deserted place for 15 years, hoping David would never find him. David finds him, calls him to come. Mephibosheth bows down, scared to death that he's going to lose his head. And what does David say? Don't be what? Don't be what? What does God say to us? Don't be what? Don't be afraid. I've called you in front of me. Don't be afraid. For I will surely show you, look at this, kindness. Praise God. I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, the whole house. And you will, now get this, you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Would you say that Mephibosheth had a poor self-image? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Who am I? What is man that you should be mindful of him? And then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's servant. And said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. Now you and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him, bring in the crops, so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. So now there's 36 people who are working for Mephibosheth. And he thought he was going in to lose his head. <laughs> 
Verse 11, Then Ziba said to the king, Your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of his, the king's sons. Does that sound like adoption? Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth, that's a hard one to say, <laughs> lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. Now get this. And he was crippled in both feet. The idea, the afterthought is, he always ate at the king's table, and he was a cripple. Can you imagine that? I mean, that's the idea. That's the, that's the, the, the postscript there. He always ate at the king's table, and he was crippled in both feet. Can you imagine that? That David would be mindful of this, this shameful thing, this, this useless person who can't do anything for himself? Does that sound familiar? Listen to the parallels. Listen to the analogies to God's adoption of us. David took the initiative, did he not? He took the initiative in adopting Mephibosheth like the Lord takes the initiative in adopting us. David showed mercy to one who was unworthy, who was descended from an evil enemy. Weren't we children of the devil? And so the Lord seeks among the children of the devil sons to adopt. David was motivated by love for Jonathan, and in our case, God is motivated by his love for Christ. David desired to show kindness, and Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7, God desired to show kindness to us. David chose one who was outside the standard of perfection. He was crippled in both feet. And so God has chosen the same to be his sons, those who are outside the standard of perfection. David brought him to his own table to feed him as his own son. And so the Lord brings us to his table as his sons adopted into his family. And David gave him an inheritance, and so the Lord also has promised us an inheritance. Isn't that a beautiful picture, a glorious picture of God's adopting us into his family? Let me close with this last verse. Turn with me back to Romans. Verse 16. Paul says here, he says, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. The Spirit testifies with our spirit. We have an internal witness, an internal assurance that when the enemy comes or our own heart condemns us, the spirit of sonship, the spirit of adoption, testifies with our spirit, assures us. He says, no, I was there. I was there. You've been adopted. You're a son of God. You're a child of God. Now, you're only going to hear that here when you turn to him. Isn't that true? When, you, when you're filled with the spirit, when you, when you turn to his, you're going to only have assurance when you're walking in the spirit. Assurance. Incidentally, in the Roman adoption process, seven witnesses were required for the adoption to be valid. Seven witnesses. So that if the father died and the adoption was contested, it's kind of hard to do away with seven witnesses, isn't it? They required seven witnesses. And I want you to notice them. This is astounding. In Isaiah chapter 11, the Holy Spirit 
We're talking about assurance. The Holy Spirit is described as the sevenfold spirit. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 1, Revelation chapter 4, verse 5, the Holy Spirit is called the sevenfold spirit. Interesting coincidence, isn't it? You see, the incredible assurance that the Spirit of God gives us, that we are sons of God, that we have a no condemnation, no fear status. Whenever you question, whenever you doubt, whenever you wonder, go back. Abba! Papa! And let the Spirit of God fill you up. Let the Spirit of God speak to your heart. Let the Spirit of God witness to your spirit that you are a son of God. There's a couple of passages we don't have time to look at, but I want to encourage you. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-11, through 11, and 1 John chapter 3, verses 18-24. through 24. Again, they talk about the witness of the Spirit assuring us as we walk in the Spirit that you'll not lose your confidence, that you will not forfeit your assurance that you're a child of God as you walk in the Spirit. Let's pray. Papa. Papa. I love you tonight. I bless your name. You're my God. You're my Savior. You're my Lord. You are my Papa. You know all my needs. You know all my brokenness. You know all my pain. You know all my anxieties. Do you want to fill me and strengthen me? Do you want me to know the assurance that I've been set free? Papa, thank you. Thank you for your grace to me. Thank you for opening my understanding, for expanding my vision of who you are. Thank you that your spirit causes me to cry out to you in a very intimate, in a very personal way. I bless you tonight. I thank you for being my Papa. I pray that you would strengthen us tonight, each one of us, that when fear draws near to our doorstep, when fear threatens our heart, that we would come to you we would rush into you. Papa. Papa. I'm afraid that you would fill us with your spirit. That you would pour your love into our heart by your spirit. That that fear might be driven far from us. We have no place else to go. We don't want to go anyplace else, but to you. And so we praise you and we bless you. And we thank you for being our Papa. We pray this in our big brother's name. The name, the precious name of Jesus. And for his sake. Amen. Amen and amen. Beloved, be in prayer for all of our brothers and sisters who are in need and hurting. Go before the Lord with fervent intercession. 
cry out to him. Let the Holy Spirit begin to move in you. And call him Papa. Papa. 